a podcast brought to you by Energy Live News. In this podcast, ELN editor Sumit Bose is talking to Bus Lansdorp, CEO of the Mars One Project. Bus, thanks very much for joining me for this special Talking Energy. Uh, we're delighted to, to have you here and uh, obviously we'll talk a little about uh, Energy Live Future where you'll be speaking a bit later on. But tell me your story because... Um, You've been in the energy world, haven't you? Let's, we'll talk about Mars in a moment, yep. but tell me where it all began, how you got into all of this. Um, so I'm a mechanical engineer. I finished my master's at uh, Twente University, and then I started a PhD in airborne wind energy, which, is, which was especially back then in 2003, a very innovative method of wind energy generation with um, uh, an aircraft attached to a cable. So you fly a uh, an aircraft like a, like a kite, uh, high tension in the cable, you, you pull the cable off a drum, the drum rotates and generates energy on the ground. And then when there's no more cable on the drum or when you've reached your maximum altitude, you, the plane makes a dive, dives back towards the ground station and the cable can be retracted with only a small amount of energy. Uh, so basically it's a wind-driven piston engine. Right. Um, so I did my, uh, uh, I started my PhD on that. I worked on it for five years. I worked uh, a lot on project management, basically um, uh, helping run the project. Uh, and after five years, I saw an opportunity to start a business. Um, and I did. So I started my first company, Ampix Power, uh, developing uh, airborne wind energy for commercial purposes. So hang on, where did the idea for this PhD first come from? Because uh, I would have thought that, that, uh, that concept must be a fairly well-known concept. It wasn't sort of... Uh, revolutionary, uh, but, but you seem to have made it and then made a business out of it. So what, what yeah, was the, the difference of what you did compared to what other people have done? So the idea is really old, it's from the 80s, uh, but of course what, what you're basically doing with airborne wind energy is taking uh, uh, the wind turbine, which is a lot of material, uh, but only the tip of the wind turbine is really the part that you're interested in because that's where most of the energy is generated. So what we're doing with the plane is flying the pattern of the tip of the blade. Gotcha but removing the tower and the inner part of the blades, which are actually most of the material and the cost. Uh, so it's replacing material by intelligence, the intelligence being the software to fly such a complex machine autonomously. Um, so the idea was thought of in the 80s, but they couldn't build it. And then um, uh, back in 2003, when I started this, the, the, autonomy, the autonomous systems were becoming small and affordable enough to do this. And uh, my professor is actually one of the godfathers of the revival of airborne wind energy. Um, and he started this project, the letter mill project at uh, Delft University of Technology. And he asked me to work on the, on the ground station uh, as a PhD research. And um, well, that's, uh, that's how it started. So th that's the, the PhD really wasn't my idea. Um, but it was my professor's idea. And by, by the way, my professor was the first Dutch astronaut, if I can make the link oh back to space uh, right. quickly. Yeah. Right, so that's a good inspiration. Yep. So the business you started, uh, you started when? How old were you when you started your first business? Uh, it was 2008, so I was 31 years old. Okay. And uh, we, I, I worked on it for three years. We, uh, I, I co-founded it with uh, Richard Ruitenkamp uh, and uh, we worked in it uh, first with just the two of us. We quickly found two other guys to help. And when I left, there were eight people. And now there's actually 50 people in the company. 
and it's still re doing really well. But in my time, we built a team, we developed a working prototype, we got the first investments on board. So is it now being used to generate power commercially, what you came up as a concept with as, as a student? Uh, now it's still in the development phase, so the, the, the small-scale prototype is, um, is working fully autonomously in energy generation phase, but it's not big enough to do autonomous takeoff and landing. And they're now working on a bigger system that can uh, prove the full system. And then after that, they're going to build the first commercial system. So you do your company, you set it up, and off it goes, and, and that's all great. When did the interest in Mars come along? Uh, the interest in Mars is actually older than uh, MPEX Power. I, uh, I first came up with uh, the idea uh, of permanent settlement, so the one-way trip, when I was in university, when I was 20 years old. And uh, the reason is I, I wanted to go to Mars. I'm not American, uh, so I knew that I would never qualify through NASA. Uh, so I thought if I want to go to Mars, I'll have to do it myself. Remember, I was 20 years old. And I started designing a mission. So I read everything there is to read on uh, Mars missions. So NASA's designs, but also The Case for Mars by Robert Zubrin. And, and anything else there was to read. And as I was reading it, I immediately, in my mind and on paper, removed anything that had to do with the return mission. Because it's so complex to do the return mission. And uh, so this, this is a long time ago. I, then I, of course, I had to graduate. Then I started my PhD. During my PhD, I did a Moon Mars Habitat Design Workshop at the European Space Agency. So I looked up all my, all my old calculations. I was all inspired again. <coughs> but I could never figure out how to fund a mission to Mars. Yeah. And then um, in 2008, uh, so after, uh, uh, sorry, in 2008, I started MPIX. And th three years into MPIX, in 2011, I started Mars One. How did you start it? <laughs> this is the question. So everyone can have a dream. And, you know, I, I used to want to go to space. I'm, I'm, you said it, it was a long time ago, the 80s. I'm from the 80s. So, you know, I grew up with the, 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 the space missions of uh, the tail end of Apollo, I just about remember. And I remember the handshake and I remember, uh, you know, the, 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 the launch of the shuttle and all of that sort of stuff. But, you know, everyone wants to be an astronaut. No one actually goes about doing it unless you're uh, incredibly lucky. Or crazy. Or crazy. <laughs> How do you go about thinking, okay, I want to go to Mars, I'm then going to fund a company? Because if you're going to start a business, you've got to make a business case and you've got to get funding. Yep. Where did you go? So the, uh, I, I didn't start Mars One until 2011 because of the business case. So the, cost, the estimated cost of our mission is about six billion US dollars and I don't have it in my pocket. Um, so, I, so we needed a business case and I couldn't think of one. And then uh, in late 2010, uh, I stumbled upon the idea of the business case when I saw the projected revenue numbers for the London Olympics. So the London Olympics, obviously, are the Olympics every year, are, every event are pretty big, mm -hmm. but they're not nearly as big as the event of mankind settling another planet. And I found that the projected revenue back then of the London Olympics was about four and a half billion US dollars from just three weeks of events, right? So I thought if one Olympic Games is worth four and a half billion from broadcasting rights and sponsorships and partnerships, what might a Mars mission be worth? So that was the, uh, the, the initial idea. Then, of course, we know that Star Wars merchandise grosses two billion per year. Uh, there's the FIFA game that does 800 million per year. So it's those kinds of numbers that um, 
that convinced me that there is a business case for a human mission to Mars. Uh, of course, there's also technology, there's spin-off technology that might be really interesting, but the near-term business case is content. It's the most exciting story of the 21st century. And we have a company that holds the exclusive monetization rights around those, uh, around that content, and that is uh, huge. That's in an incredible concept. It's almost a bit like you know a proper film merchandising concept. So the whole point of the difference between what you plan to do with Mars One and what someone like NASA would do, NASA would fund it through government money, and it would be a uh, a project that you could say would be altruistic. I'm not saying yours isn't, but yours is actually a commercial case to go. Yeah, there's actually, the Mars One is two entities. We have the not-for-profit foundation that's organizing the mission, that's training the crews, that will own the mission uh, to Mars, and nobody owns the foundation, which I really like, because I believe that if humans are settling another planet, it should not be owned by some, by some uh, corporate entity. Um, and then next to the foundation, there is Mars One Ventures, which holds the commercial exploitation rights. And uh, indeed, that's, it, it needs a business case. Uh, you, you can only do something if you can afford it. And uh, this is the business case. And so the, the foundation certainly has its, uh, its for, the, for the benefit of all mankind ideas. Uh, but for Ventures, it doesn't matter. And you know, a comparison that I like to make is uh, Star Wars and Disney. So the foundation is, has, a, a, has, an, has a, a story to tell, like Star Wars is a story. And uh, Mars One Ventures is like Disney that holds the exclusive monetization rights to a story. And that's, so Disney Star Wars is really explaining the relationship between Mars One Foundation and Mars, Mars One Ventures very well. Everyone would think that going to Mars sounds like a bit of a pipe dream. Um, Technologically, some qu simple, quick questions. Can we actually get to Mars and settle there? Uh, yes. So we the, have the, the science is, for it now. Yeah, the reason, the reason that it's possible with existing technology, not existing systems, eh, but existing technology, is that Mars One has decided that this is a mission of permanent settlement. The reason that no space agencies are going to Mars it's not that they can't go to Mars, it's that they can't come back. But we and hear so many stories of Mars rovers going missing. You know, we had the famous Beagle spacecraft here that didn't land. It seems a planet that can change quite rapidly in terms of its weather. It's inhospitable and it's, frankly, a hell of a long way away. You're not worried about those basic parameters of getting there. You think that's not really a big technological issue. Well, the big problem is getting someone safely back. So there's, there's no such thing as a safe mission to Mars because it's always going to be more risky than taking a plane. And it, there's no way around it because the first planes were very high risk too. But it's, it's possible with existing technology. And to illustrate how, diff, how much more difficult it is to do the return, I would like to uh, tell you, probably you don't know this, but 5% of all rocket launches from Earth fail. 5%. And they don't all explode, that's the few that you see in the news, but 5% of all rocket launches, for whatever reason, have their satellite in the wrong orbit at the end of the launch. So it might be an explosion, but it could also be that it's just in a too low orbit or a too high orbit or too elliptical, whatever. So if 5% of rocket launches from Earth fail, how can we do it reliably from Mars? Because on Earth we have 
hundreds of engineers, sometimes thousands of engineers checking all those systems at the last, and they say at, at the very last moment, just before launch, they're checking all the systems and still 5% fails. Now we're going to take a return rocket, we're going to plant it on top of an earth rocket, so it's going to be, it's going to go through all the vibrations of the launch, then it's going to fly through the vacuum of space for seven months, then it's going to, to enter the atmosphere of Mars with again a lot of vibrations, then it's going to hit the surface of Mars with some kind of bang that we can't predict very well because the atmosphere is not always the same density. So it's basically a broken down rocket with no maintenance that's going to be there for a couple of years without any maintenance and then three or four people in the NASA scenario need to take that rocket and fly it back to Earth. It's just not going to happen. And if taking away that challenge uh, is, a, is a huge difference. It also means much less technology development because we no, don't need the very large landing systems. We don't need to develop and prove. Of course, you, you'd have to prove your, your Mars takeoff capability before you put humans in there. But how are you going to do that without humans on the surface? So it's mind-boggling. I mean, our mission is very complex, but the return mission is mind-boggling. I, I can't imagine the first team on Mars returning to Earth. But your mission revolves around people making decisions that they'll never see any of this again. Yeah, they that have sounds to sacrifice everyone. Yes, and that sounds really dramatic today because I can I can fly today in the morning to New York and I can be back at London Heathrow uh, less than 24 hours later. But of course, 70 years ago, if your neighbor said, "Hey, I'm going to New York," you would assume, you would know actually that he sold his house and that he bought a one-way ticket on a boat. So today, in the in the in the era of infinite transportation, it sounds a little bit wacky. Yeah, but he's still on planet Earth. He may have gone to Australia yeah, or, don't, don't or America, but it's not going to a complete place where there is no yeah. atmosphere. There are but none of those things. Don't I? I think the analogy actually uh, of exploration of the Earth goes a lot further than you would think. So, do you think that people who migrated to to America 150 years ago, do you do you think they knew very well where they were going? So Mar on Mars we know everything. We know the chemical um, structure of the soil, of the atmosphere. We know exactly the, the temperatures during the year. We have a habitable settlement waiting for the humans before they go. We know much more about Mars than those um, settlers did 150 years ago. And or if we go even further back in time, let's go 50,000 years back in time when humans were only living in, in Africa. Imagine showing them a picture of someone living in London. And they would say, you're crazy, that's impossible because it's much too cold. Uh, the, the night in the winter, how can, how can you survive such a night? Um, it's, uh, the day is very short. There's no way you could, you could do that. It's science fiction, they would say, if they, if they knew the term. But of course, now we are living here. We're living in the north of Norway, where it's even harder. And we leave, we're even living in space for more than 10 years, where it's actually even harder to live than on Mars. So I think that humans live te need technology to survive almost anywhere, except for a few places on this planet. And Mars is just, you need more technology than in the north of Norway, but less than in the ISS. Let's talk about Mars and energy. Once you get to Mars, okay, we can talk about the, our propulsion here and whatever we do and taking elliptical orbits. Let's forget all that. We've landed on Mars, we're there. I can't plug in, yeah? I've got to get my power. I'm also going to have to have power that can cope with 
the huge storms on Mars, the, the un, as you say, there are parameters we know, but there are many parameters we don't know. What do you, would, would you say would be the key energy types or uh, scenarios that we would have to have to survive on Mars, let's just say for a year? Are we just talking solar panels? How are we going to get our water? How are we going to clean things? What have you got of conceptualized in this, in this uh, project around the energy space? So the baseline design is uh, solar uh, for uh, energy generation and batteries for storage. And we've, uh, we've scaled the system uh, to deal with both the, uh, the longest winter night, so the battery system needs to have enough capacity uh, to, to, to last throughout the night, and the solar panels need to be large enough to, on the sh in the shortest day, charge the batteries for the night. Um, and, and how long and is the longest night? Uh, it's actually roughly the same as here in, uh, on, on our location on Mars. It will be roughly the same as in Holland and uh, London. So 16 hours of night, uh, 8 hours of, uh, of day. Uh, so it's 42 degrees north latitude on Mars. Uh, the reason for 42 degrees north latitude is that uh, we need to be far enough north for enough water in the soil and far enough south for enough for, for the night not to be too long. How long is a Martian day in Earth hours? It's almost the same as on Earth. So almost. it's 24 hours and four, uh, roughly 40 minutes. Okay. And so the, the baseline design is uh, solar only. Of course, we, we've also looked at dust storms. Uh, during dust storms, you only get uh, about 20% of, um, of the output that you would get during a normal day. Uh, so the combination of those two, that's how you scale your system. And then basically, during summer and when there's no dust storms, you've got too much energy. But, well, you, you need to design your system, of course, to design the worst conditions. So all the movies we've seen where the dust storm covers all the you know, huge sand covering your solar panels, you know, Matt Damon growing potatoes out of poo and all of that sort of stuff. Yeah, I like the potatoes <laughs> growing out of poo, but uh, the, the, marsh, the, the, the atmosphere on Mars is very thin. It's about 1% of the atmospheric density of the Earth. So the Martian atmosphere cannot support a grain of sand like the, 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 the Earth atmosphere can. So the dust on Mars is actually as fine as cigarette smoke. So you won't see big piles of sand on your solar panels. It's a, it's a thin layer uh, of, of dust, it's, and it really is dust. Uh, and well, there, there, we will investigate different methods of, of cleaning it. But one method might be uh, blowing CO2 over the panel to, to basically blow the dust uh, away. So you've got your solar panel and you'll have battery technology. I know battery technology is improving, but let's say it's, it's there to give you that power. That's only a kind of giving enough to keep us going. If you want to settle, you have to grow. You have to create towns, cities, whatever. What would be the next energy stage that you see for, for Mars One? Yeah, our focus is really those first couple of missions because it's, it's not very useful looking too far into the future. Our first, our first manned mission is 2032, which is already 14 years away. So, so many things will change in these 14 years. That who knows what kind of rockets we'll have available, what kind of systems we will have available. But there are some alternatives. Um, so, instead of sending solar panels from Earth, one idea might be to produce parts of the solar panels on Mars. So, for example, just a, a, just a crazy idea, you could um, produce uh, plastic film on Mars 
and then print uh, the, the solar panel uh, electronics basically onto the panel that you've produced on Mars and cover it with a really thin uh, transparent film. And that would reduce your, uh, your import, so to say, from Earth, which is of course really expensive, would reduce it to a few percent of the total weight of the solar panels. So that, that would be really interesting. There's the nuclear option, which I, um, I'm not necessarily a big fan of because of the, um, the, the public opinion of nuclear, of course, is very negative. If you don't need it, I think you shouldn't use it, but it might be necessary. But then I think especially for the first couple of missions, uh, because it's well, you'd actually fly a nuclear reactor out to Mars. Well, not not the types that we uh, that we have here on Earth. But uh, NASA has just released a really interesting study with the Los Alamos uh, Institute uh, on very small scale nuclear reactors, which are basically only a heat source with a Stirling engine, uh, so as few as possible moving components and a radiator, and um, using those relatively simple uh, nuclear reactors. Uh, for energy production, and that, that could be something that's very valuable for early stage uh, Mars missions. Then we don't know exactly if, if geothermal would be possible on Mars, but that would be uh, very interesting. But I, I do believe that solar will be the way to go for a long time, and uh, maybe a different storage method than, uh, than batteries, because of, of course batteries are, will be very difficult to produce on Mars, but maybe, uh, this is again just brainstorming crazy ideas, maybe we can have a big, uh, a, a big uh, load of aluminium and use the phase change of aluminium as energy storage with, again, Stirling engines or something like that. So heat storage instead of uh, really electricity storage. And so I, I think there's different uh, different opportunities, but these are really systems that we that still need to be developed, that need to be, um, we need to find out what is the optimal solution for long-term Mars exploration, but short-term, I'm almost convinced it will be either solar only or solar complemented by small, a very small nuclear reactor. Water, how are you gonna get water? Yeah, there's a lot of, um, a lot of misconception about water on Mars. Whenever you hear about oh, maybe there was once water on Mars, then they're talking about liquid water. So has there ever been liquid water flowing over the planet? And it's so interesting because, it, of course, if there's liquid water, then it's very likely that there was once life or might still be life under the surface of Mars. But there, we know that there is a lot of water on Mars. I believe if you melt all the water on Mars, there's a layer of seven meters all over the planet. So there's plenty of water. Um, and we know also where it is uh, quite accurately. There's, there's still new water found. So recently they found water close to the surface, much closer to the equator than the 42 degrees north latitude that I just spoke about. So there's opportunity to make our mission easier because we can be closer to the equator. But there's no question that, for example, at 42 degrees north latitude, there's a lot of uh, water ice in the, in the first meter of the soil on the planet. So there's, water is really not one of the bigger uh, issues. And do you think that we could actually live? This is the concept. There's a concept of science where you say you're all a bunch of scientists and you go. But your Mars One seems to me about we live there. We actually live there. So if we live, we eventually create communities and jobs and relaxation and, you know, 
uh, you could talk the Arnold Schwarzenegger version <laughs> of, you know, Total Recall, but, you know, bars, whatever you want to call it, you actually create a community. Yep. Is that really conceptually possible? Or is Mars just simply going to be a battle and all you'll need is scientists and engineers to live there because that's the only people who you'll actually need to live there. You won't need an artist because what's the point? Yeah. You won't need a journalist because what's the point? Yeah, and no, I, I think that from the start, they, the, the people living there will need their relaxation. And I, there won't be bars in the first year. <laughs> uh, but uh, remember that most of, most of people's hobbies are actually indoor stuff. So you can watch movies, you can play games, you can be online with a communications delay, but it's, uh, it's very manageable. It's a lot better than Australia was 100 years ago. So uh, you can do a lot of things already uh, from the moment you land the first crew. Uh, but I believe that um, they need to, as quickly as possible, start building things locally. So again, just crazy ideas. This is not science, this is just uh, science fiction. So we're making Martian bricks. Uh, we're building a donut-shaped structure. Maybe it's 100 meters in diameter, uh, the, the big diameter, and the, the small diameter is 10 or 12 meters. And then you've suddenly got uh, a place where you can build a small park. It's tall enough for trees. You can run your laps. Uh, you can make it beautiful, whereas in the beginning it will, well, it might be beautiful in the beginning, but it will be small. So they need to start we need to start developing those technologies. The people on Mars need to start investing time into actually building systems locally. And then you can really grow and do big things. You can't send b really big things from Earth because it will, even if launch, co launch costs are cut by a factor of 50, it's still very expensive to send things uh, from Earth. So you need to do things locally. All of this sounds amazing, sounds great. How realistic are you as a businessman, not as a philanthropist, entrepreneur, dreaming kid, that you'll actually get this mission happening in the next 14 years? So technically it's possible. I'm convinced that we can fund it. We have a, a good funding model. We are we're just listed at the Frankfurt Stock Exchange, which is helping tremendously. Uh, so I'm, I'm convinced that the funding can be there at the right time. There's plenty of technical challenges, but I don't, see, I don't see any reason why it could not actually happen. Uh, of course, our schedule, uh, current planned landing is 2032. There's a lot of opportunity for delay, but I'm convinced that as long as Mars One is, is showing that it's moving in the right direction, then it's okay that we, that we have a delay at, a, at some point in time. So I'm, I wouldn't put all my money on 2032, but I'm convinced that this is something that can be done, and I'm also convinced that Mars One can do it. Would you go? Uh, yes, is the short answer. The long answer is a little bit more complicated. <laughs> so 20 years ago, when I came up with the idea, uh, I was 20 years old, and uh, I naively thought that I would be the perfect engineer for the first mission. So I know now that I'm completely the wrong type of personality. I'm stubborn, <laughs> I'm impatient, I'm easily annoyed. I, I use different words in my resume, but because they're actually uh, the perfect description sense. of an entrepreneur. Yes. Um, yeah, you're goal-oriented, driven, etc. But to put me in a team flying to Mars for seven months, living on Mars for two years before the second crew is joining, it, it, it won't work. I, it, 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 the team you will fall apart. Crazy. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, probably, or, or they would, uh, certainly they would drive me crazy. 
So I know that I won't be on the first team. I, I, I also have kids now. I didn't have them 20 years ago. I have a two-year-old and a four-year-old. And at this moment, I wouldn't go. So if someone from NASA walked, walked uh, in the, into this room now and would say, okay, Bas, come with us. Uh, we need you for the mission to Mars. I would decline because at this moment, I, it's such an interesting age with my kids. I wouldn't want to leave them. But you wouldn't go, and I certainly wouldn't go, and I'll be too far too old in that time. But you will need people who are not single or don't have kids. You will need people who will have to make that sacrifice of leaving children behind, children that won't see their parents. Isn't that something you think that would be the stumbling block? Because it's such a big sacrifice to make this work with there's no return ticket. Yeah, I would again like to make the comparison to exploration of this planet, where people have also left their parents, sometimes children behind, to settle on other continents. So I think it's it's proven that uh, that this has happened. I mean, we don't commute to, the, to back to Africa every evening for dinner. Um, so it, it has happened, and I think it's possible. So I wouldn't leave my two-year-old and my four-year-old, but I, I might want to leave my 16-year-old and my 18-year-old. I don't know. Or my 25-year-old and my 27-year-old. At some point in time, you, it become, becomes easier to create that distance between you and your children. But I do think that uh, many of the people that are going to Mars will not have children. So some of them might have very adult children, uh, but I think the younger ones will not have children. I think it will be really difficult. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a parent, uh, so I can... Uh, for me, it would be very difficult to leave my young children behind, but yeah, it's, it's a choice that everyone has to make for themselves. But to, to, we, we know that people will drop out of our, of our selection process voluntarily. Because you're looking training for people process. now, aren't you? Yeah, we've had our first application, um, job application open. We had more than 200,000 uh, people registered. 200,000 people want to get a mask. Yeah, so it's, as far as we know, it's the most popular job vacancy <laughs> of all times. <laughs> oh my God. For a one-way trip to Mars. Um, and, and just some quick numbers. How many, under, uh, if, you, if it all works in the first mission, how many people will you be sending? Uh, we're sending four people every two years. So and four people have to live for two years on Mars. Yeah, That's mission number one. Yes, and seven months there. So almost three years with just the four of them before they're joined by a second team. Wow. Yeah, that's, they, they definitely have the hardest job of all. Yeah. yeah. And then the obvious final question would be, if we do this, babies on Mars. People, we will have to colonize. We can't keep sending adults over. We will need to have children. Do you actually foresee, let's, give, let's go into the future. It's all about the future, this conversation. A yep. hundred years from now, will there be children playing on a school on Mars? Oh, absolutely. I, I'm, I'm convinced of that. There's two problems that uh, we need to solve before we should uh, try having Martians, uh, making Martians. The first one is it needs to grow from an outpost. You know, a dangerous place uh, where anything might go wrong at any time. It needs to become a village uh, with such a high redundancy of systems and backups uh, that it's safe. Um, so that's, that's step number one. But step number two, uh, I think, is more, um, is more important. Uh, we don't know yet if it's, if, if it's possible to, for, uh, for a baby to develop normally uh, if from an embryo to a baby uh, in 40% gravity. Uh, Mars has 40% gravity of the Earth. 
Uh, there, there's been some research with mice in zero-G, and it, 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 it's looking good. But of course, we don't know the long-term effects. So it needs to be studied with animal trials. It needs to be done very carefully. And if, if we find out that it's possible, and when, when it's a safe, safe enough environment, that, pe that parents, prospective parents, can justify their decision to have children, then if those two conditions are met, then of course. Do you think Mars is something we need to do simply because it's there? Or is it something we might have to do because of what's happening to the Earth? Um, no, I'm more optimistic than, than uh, both of those views, actually. I've, I've just going there because it's Stephen there. Stephen Hawking said we've got to do something about yeah. where the human race will go. And other people say, no, look, we, obviously we, we can do so much to save this planet. Do you see Mars as simply going to be an offshoot of Earth rather than an, a replacement for Earth? Yeah, I don't think you can you can replace Earth. It's like it's uh, it's worse than Australia. Eh? Australia is huge, but it supports right now I believe 27 million people, and it can't support many more because it's it's not very supportive of human life. And Mars is worse, of course, because there's almost no no water compared to the to even to Australia. Um, so it can never be plan B. And I think that's exactly where the value of Mars is, not from an economic point of view, but for, a, for the Earth. And we're not going to Mars for Mars, we're going to Mars for a better planet Earth. And I think that showing people that the second best place in the solar system, which is Mars, is a dry desert planet, it will make them more aware about how special our Earth is. It will make them more aware that this is our spaceship and we are not the passengers, we're the crew, and we need to, need to take care of our spaceship. So I think that, uh, that Mars can really be a big contribution in that. I think it will inspire people, it will inspire kids to want to be scientists and engineers and astronauts. I think it will inspire adults to start companies, to file new patents, to pursue further education, because if we can go to Mars, anything is possible, right? So, it will change the mindset of people on this earth and thus changing uh, how, we, how we live on this earth. So now I'm, I'm much more optimistic. And of course, there's interesting spin-off technology. So on Mars, we need to grow food with less water and less energy, which is very useful on earth. Uh, there will be other things like uh, recycling, lighter weight solar panels. And for, and that's an interesting energy example. Right now on earth, people want, would like to invest to make solar panels lighter weight because they're probably cheaper once you once you have to once you have to process, but it's not really worth spending a lot of money on because the the, the cost of the material is not so high. But if you're going to Mars, then the kilo the, the price of every kilo you land on Mars in our in our designs is a hundred thousand US dollars. So to sh to shave a few percent of your solar panel for Mars is really worth it. And then when you when you have that technology for a lighter weight solar panel for Mars, then it's probably also cheaper to produce for Earth applications. So there's all kinds of business cases, uh, but the real, the real value to this planet, I believe, is uh, making us more aware of our planet and how special it is. Brilliant. That is a cracking line. Thank you very much for that.